Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Good morning. I invite you to turn in your Bible to the little book of Haggai. If the Bible is new terrain for you, it'll be in the Old Testament, towards the back end of the Old Testament as you move into the New Testament. If you're using one of the little blue Bibles that we provide, I believe it's on page 461. Nice. You're good. You're good. (laughs) The unplanned things. All right, Haggai chapter 2. Here it's recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet, now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, 
does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So let's go to this Lord of hosts in prayer. O Lord, you are all of our hope, our desire is to see this people, this house, this church made glorious. And so you call us to work. And yet our hope in our working entirely, utterly, totally is that you'll meet us in it. You alone are the Lord of the house. You alone can build it and make it glorious. You alone can fill it with glory. And so as we turn to your word now, we pray that you would show us these things and that you would cause them to be laid in our hearts in a way that we can never forget it. May you be glorified. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you're familiar with the Pilgrim's Progress, but in the Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan allegorizes about a palace called Beautiful. It's a best rest stop 
for narrow path travelers like the main character named Christian. As he details it, he calls it a most stately house of people who are clad from head to toe in gold. He finds all their table talk to be this rich feast of all kinds of comforts consumed as it was with the Lord of it all, consumed with His grace, consumed with His will, consumed with His purpose for the house. And as we all kind of love a good sleep, don't we? Right? He then begins to wax eloquent of sleeping in a chamber called peace. Isn't that lovely? A chamber called peace. And then he goes on, and he rises up from his sleep by the restoration of that peace, and he sings this. Where am I now? now he's in Palace Beautiful, right? Where am I now? Is this the love and care of Jesus? For the men that pilgrims are, thus to provide that I shall be forgiven and, and more dwell already the next door to heaven. As he takes a tour then of Palace Beautiful, indeed he discovers Emmanuel's land can be seen from the top of the palace. And as he must still journey there, he finds the palace then to be most suitable to all his needs. There he's led to a study and then to an armory where he's equipped again from head to toe with everything that's needful for making it all the way home, all the way to that celestial city. And so the answer given to his initial curiosity about the house was at length proven to be true. It was built, it was built by the Lord of a hill called Difficulty for the relief and security of pilgrims. Man, what a church is supposed to be. A people that a Christian finds indispensable for their journey home. A boarding house that's a palace beautiful. But what if she lies in ruins? Can she be built again? Or should we just give up on the biblical ideal? And if not, what hope do we have for the rebuilding? What hope do we have for the work? Do we know, do we know that we have a work to do? The Christian, you read the book, Christian only entered Palace Beautiful under examination by those who then went on to refresh him as they did. They kept, they kept the palace beautiful, made it what it was. By God's help, are you and I, are we as a church after the same thing to build this house into a haven, a safe haven that's right next door to God's heaven? Let's come to our text. And first, to the means of God's house made glorious. The means of God's house made glorious in verses 1 to 9. And per usual, you see that it begins with preaching the word. And as we see in Ezra, Haggai's preaching is, is supportive preaching. Supportive preaching. It's what the people need, when the people need it, for doing what God has 
charged them to do. How God does tend to have this penchant for perfect timing with His Word. I'm sure you've experienced this before. It's what they experience here. By the dates that are given in the text, we know his prophesying, Haggai's prophesying on this occasion, is at the height of a holiday, wouldn't you know it, called the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles. So what a way to celebrate it by standing around the ruins of the former temple. I can imagine the morale for the rebuilding is fairly low. So here comes the Lord by Haggai to lift their spirits. And how does he try to lift their spirits? By depressing them even further. And if you want to lift the spirits of the people of God, you depress them first. Even if just initially. So, in verse 3, you see Haggai raises the question. It's been almost 70 years since that temple of Solomon was destroyed. He goes, did any of you, did any of you out there see the first house in its former glory? If not, perhaps you've heard tales of its glory. It really was this palace, beautiful. But how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Man, how sin, remember that it, they were exiled and it was destroyed because of their rebellion. My house sin does flatten the glorious structures of God. How it does leave his houses in ruins, defacing what's intended to be a blessing for the world into a site of divine displeasure and cursing. How critical was their holiness? to the condition of the house. And beloved, it's no different today. But what Haggai's trying to do is create a sense of their own inadequacy for the work that's in front of them. The former house was glorious. Right? It was built at the height of Israel's power with all the resources of some guy named Solomon. The most lavish king maybe in the history of the world. And most centrally, God dwelt in that house. He manifests His presence and His glory and His beauty in that house. So indeed, what are they for that work? And that's what Haggai's after, that sense of inherent helplessness. So, they hear these things and maybe they're thinking, well, let's just go home. What's the point in all this? No. The building of God's house in the past or this present in our passage or our present right now or in the future, it was never to be done by us as independent contractors. Who built Solomon's glorious temple ultimately? Probably the same person who made Solomon. Who prospered his kingdom and made it glorious. And put it into his heart 
to take the grace of God in his life and put it to God's use in the building of that temple. The situations for building these temples could not be more different. Solomon's glory and these present exiles. And yet, the God supervising both building projects is the exact same. That's why Haggai follows this up, not by waving a white flag, but by giving them the push of God. What do you see there in the text? He says, be strong. Work. Why? For I am with you. Dear ones, if this house would be glorious, lay it to heart. The greatest resource God's people have is God Himself. As He shows in verses 5-9, through if they have God, they have the Lord of the Exodus on their side. (laughs) If they have God, They have divine faithfulness on their side. If they have God, they have the sovereign of nations. Just a drop in a bucket on their side. If they have God, they have the owner of all the currency in the universe on their side. If they have God, they have the all-knowing Almighty on their side. And he's making promises to them. So what of Solomon's temple? What of it? The glory, he says, of this house will be greater than that one. So forget the situational difference. Remember your God. That's what he's saying. My spirit, verse 5, remains in your midst. And that's enough. He's enough. Fear not. Be strong. Work. For I am with you. God is the means of His house made glorious. Beloved, this has obvious implications for us. If we missed you a week ago, we made the whole Bible connection between God's houses and His household. From Eden to the tabernacle in the wilderness to temple number one to temple number two to Jesus to the church to the local church and then on into the new creation. So we are uniquely gathered and purposed to do something. And that something is to display something. And that something is the beauty and glory of the all-glorious God and His gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ and of His grace. But now as we look around and at ourselves, is that what we see? Maybe like this remnant here, we're prone to glory in the past. I know I am. Oh, for the preaching of Lloyd-Jones. Get more of that today. Oh, for the ministry of Spurgeon. Wow. No wonder he died at 58. But man, what a ministry. Oh, for the awakenings under Whitfield and Edwards. Oh, for the spirit 
of the Reformation. Can we get that back in us today? Oh, for the depth of the Puritans, the Redwoods of church history. Oh, for the champions in Augustine's day. Oh, for the church as it was at the beginning in the book of Acts. So pure, so used of God, so beautiful. We see what's gone before us. We look around at what is. If we care at all about it, perhaps we give a, a sigh and we say, oh well, we won't see glory like that again. We can only work with what we have. Well, at least such have a mind to work at all. Some, I fear, see the difference between what was and what is, and they care nothing at all about rectifying that. They read of the church in Acts and so on, and they see their own church well enough, but the difference, what their church should and could be, is as nothing in their eyes. But still others, as I said, may see it and they want to make up the difference. Praise God, they want to make up the difference. But in the doing of it, they take matters into their own hands. They work, they work, but not directly by the Word of God. They build, but not dependently upon the Holy Spirit. They have a palace, perhaps, but insofar as they were the ones who had the major hand in building it, insofar as they marginalized the Lord of the house, that palace is nothing but a house of cards. Religious pragmatism and human propaganda are no substitute for divine power and provision. That's why the Lord comes alongside Haggai by Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. They are contemporaries. They're in the same location preaching to the same people. Zechariah comes along and he reminds them, because it seems like they needed the reminding, not by your might, not by your power. You need to be strong. You need to work. You need to be courageous, but not by your might, not by your power, but by my Spirit. How easy it is to fall into that. God builds, God builds a tangibly different church than the churches people alone tend to build. Dear ones, are we supposed to see the New Testament church teeming both with real problems and real life and just chalk it up to an ideal that's out of reach? Then what use do we have of the New Testament? Well, the apostles have departed, true. Has the age departed? Is Christ still ascended as before? Or is he not? Is the Spirit still the Spirit? Of God? Is he still building as before or not? Is the Father as zealous for his house today as he was then or not? Have we forgotten our God? To be beautiful for him, we can't ever forget him. So hear it. 
Our beauty as a church is not a matter of our budget. It is not a matter of our buildings. It is not a matter of bodies in the seat. Our beauty as a church is about working with all our hearts to flesh out Jesus as a people. Under this promise, I am with you to that end. We need more than we alone can provide. Okay? Every service needs His strength. Every sermon needs His teaching. His effectual teaching. Or it's nothing. Every meeting needs His wisdom, His counsel. Every cross that we bear, does it not need His life? Every evangelistic endeavor, it needs His power. You and I, we cannot call Lazarus forth out of the grave. Every relationship needs His peace. Every soul, every soul needs His Son and His Spirit. We need the mercy of divine sufficiency. We can work our tails off. But palace beautiful is not going to be built by tailless people. It's going to be built by a prayerful people. It'll be built by a people who remember, as it says in Psalm 127, lest the Lord build the house, the laborers labor, what? In vain. So the means of God's house made glorious is God Himself and persistent reliance upon Him. So now let's consider the ministry. That's the means, the ministry of God's house made glorious. We arrive at verse 10. A couple months seem to have passed. And in that time, most vitally, it seems, the foundation of God's house has been laid at this point. Maybe this right here is the the ribbon-cutting ceremony for that. But if it is, what a message. What a message the Lord gives to the people on this occasion. Again, it's about the ministry of His house, and it is beautifully convicting. Here's what I mean. You see in verses 11 to 13, Haggai addresses the priests there with a question about transference. Where according to the law, they answer two things. Holiness is non-transferable. But uncleanness is a contagion. So, sanctified meat set in a common stew does not make the stew a holy brew. You got that? But, let a mortician, just touch the dead person, let a mortician put his lips to that stew and it becomes morally inedible for them. Holiness or cleanness is a status that God alone confers and develops. It's alien to us by nature. But sin and defilement, now, that's native to us. And it's poisonous. It's a contagion. 
Apart from vital union with God, whatever we do, whatever you do perhaps, in that state of unbelief, with its spiritual uncleanness, is corrupted. Whatever you do is corrupted with the same spiritual uncleanness, unbelief. Now Haggai's point, you see in verse 14 then, is for the people. It's about the people. The people gathered around the temple mount are unclean. But they, as we've seen, as he repeats in verses 16 and 17 of our text, have been a people who were content to live a life without God at the center. You remember that from a week ago? Content to live life without God at the center. Now, to be clear, we need to see immediately that does not mean that they weren't practitioners of mere religion. They were. They brought their offerings. You see that at the end of verse 14. They're bringing offerings. But they're bringing them to the ruins of a house without any mind to rebuild it at all. And do you remember what that implied? They were fine to live life as they pleased. Going through the God-empty motions of God's religion. Crazy. Their lack of care about the house betrayed a lack of desire for what? The presence of God. It communicated, we neither need nor want the sanctifying manifestation of God in this place. As Alec Montier put it in his commentary, quote, altar ceremonies, altar ceremonies without the house was religion without God. Think on that. They sought grace without the means of grace. And the Lord, we need to hear, will not pamper the presumptions of a people who think that they're good with God and God is good with them without owning a vital living relationship with God. Expressed, this is so critical, expressed pointedly in a passion for the edification of His house. Friends, see if you've never seen it before, mere religion, man's religion, even if it's thought to be by the book, can neither save you nor sanctify you. If you have not turned to God, verse 17, if you have not turned to God, no offering you propose to make here this morning, whether attendance in the seat, the singing of words on a screen, the bowing of a head during a prayer, the gift of an ear to the Word of God, or just the time spent to be present, none of it earns you an ounce of praise or merit from God. And the issue is you. If you are unclean, if you are unwashed, if you are unbelieving, so too are all your They're no good to God. These folks, do you see it? 
These folks went to the ruined house religiously. And yet in themselves, as they were, there was not a thing God could do, either for or against them, to rough them up a little bit, that would break their hearts, that would wean them off of the world, and send them running back to God. How desperately then did they need His presence? How desperately then did they need His power? How desperately then did they need their hearts to revolve once and for all around His house made glorious? Beloved, I pray you see God's solution for this unclean people, for lives lived in the no peace, peace under the curse of God, and no less for those who have been made clean and blessed. And he gives it in verse 15 and in verse 18. You ready? You're all on pins and needles, I know. It's the construction of God's house. That's the solution. It's the construction of God's house and the ministry of that house made glorious. So, listen, we're not allowed to say that the solution is just turning to God in the Bible. We're not allowed to say that. That it is that. But turning to God in truth is here expressed in Haggai concretely in building the house of God. A life lived among the house in pursuit of God for its good and His glory is proof, that's the word, of a cleansed heart. It's evidence of a heart that's been realigned with God's own heart. It's the visibility of a soul that's been transferred from the realm of sin's dominion and sin's curse to the dominion of God's blessing into verse 19. It's not without canonical reason that we value what we call church membership. Okay. It says something about your soul. But now, allow me to work on something here. Maybe it'll help. What we're seeing is that the house granted God's indwelling sanctifies the people. Their participation in its foundation and construction symbolizes a change in status from cursed to blessed, unholy to holy, unclean to clean. So in the passage, God's house is acting like this divine cleansing agent. Now, take that and run that to Jesus. God incarnate. And what do we see? Well, unique to Jesus, we see a man cleansing all the effects of sin from people. He takes Peter's sick mother-in-law by the hand. And he doesn't become sick. <laughs> the fever leaves her. And she's made well. 
woman bleeding for what, 12 years? Doctors can't do anything to stop the flow of sin and the curse and death. She touches the hem of his garment, is what it says. The fringe of his garment. And her issue is immediately resolved. She's unclean. Touches him, he doesn't become unclean. Power flows out of him, it says, and she becomes clean. He touches a man who is unclean with leprosy. And what happens? Does Jesus become unclean? No. The leper is cleansed. He touches a girl who had deceased. She was unclean. And when he does that, takes her by the hand, calls at her, Talitha Kumi, and she receives life from the dead. He dies on the cross. And while he's there, he exchanges out the curse that belonged to the thief. And in that place, gives his paradise. He takes on our sins into himself and makes full atonement. Can it be? Yes, it can for you and me. He became a curse for us that we would become a blessing in Him. By His blood, He bought us and He regenerated us, raised us from the dead. He justified us, forgave us of our sins, counted us righteous. He washed us, cleansed us, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He set us apart as what? Holy to the Lord. And for what? For what purpose? That we be a disjointed house of worldly religiosity? A lifeless, powerless shell of a church? Or a palace beautiful built by the Lord of the hill for the relief and security of saints? Church, Christ has knit us together to be a blessing. To administer divine transference, divine change to all the world and especially to the household of faith. In the gospel, we have the truth that God uses to save sinners. (laughs) Crazy. Oh my. To trade out their sin and their guilt and their death and their hell for His forgiveness, His peace, His life in Christ. Like, are we believing that? Are we preaching that? Are we showcasing, displaying the power of that in our life together? And in that corporate life, are we, are we refreshing to one another? As Palace Beautiful was for Christian, are we life-giving? Is our fellowship like a, a nice bath? A washing in the waters of life 
after being out there for a week in the muck of the world? Do we have holy accountability here? Is there a real interest, an abiding interest in each other's spiritual welfare? Is there much of the Bible Is there much of Emmanuel's land? Can you see it? Is there much in the way of equipment, discipleship, growth? What about pastoral care? Is there much in the way of pastoral care? What about blessed peace? You come and you go, you know the peace of Christ. Just fill your heart. David Brainer used to talk about how happy he was. He'd go down, he'd lie down at night. He's out in the wilderness trying to be a witness for Jesus to the Native American Indians. And he would lie down under the stars and put his head down. And he said, my only peace. Because it was hard. He said his only peace was that he, he knew that he went to sleep under the smile of God. Because of Jesus. Do we come and we go and say, man, that house is next door to heaven. Surely God is in this people. Because dear ones, that's what we can be. By the help of God. Friend, if you're a Christian, you miss so much of what your soul most needs by relativizing the local church, putting it to the side, particularly where she's gaining health and beauty. Do you realize that? It is the, listen now, it is the distinct ministry of God's house made glorious to clad you as a Christian from head to toe in purest gold. That's our ministry. So be careful. It's sort of all the rage right now, this churchless Christianity. The problem is you will not find that anywhere in the Bible. What you'll find is what I am delighted to be able to testify about this church. You will find an imperfect people that Jesus is taking and making into the absolute loveliest people in the land. That's true of you. He's making you into a people who care to build the palace beautiful. So let me just urge you not to deprive yourself of the refreshment you'll find in the local church. As the text implies, it's not just life-altering, but it is eternity-changing. Eternity-impacting. Okay. So, there's the means in the ministry of God's house made glorious unto the master of it, who is all our beauty. We pick up in verse 20. You want to look there? It's a second message on the same day. Well, then like a morning service and then a night service or something like that. If you want biblical warrant for something, maybe that's what it is. Proof texting at its finest. <laughs> but it gets to the very necessary question. Okay, the foundation of the house has been laid. 
The house itself is being rebuilt. What about Psalm 2, verse 6, Haggai? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What about 2 Samuel chapter 7 as we brought up a week ago? What about that throne? What about that king? What about David? What about his greater son? What about Messiah? Will the house of God have its royal head? That's where Haggai drops us off. Isn't that great? He tells us of something seismic in verses 21 to 22. All that stuff, the heavens shaking and all that, that's the Lord Himself. That's a theophany. Okay, That's the Lord Himself is coming to His temple. We're going to hear that in Malachi starting next week. The Lord Himself is coming to His temple to carry out another exodus. Right? The carriages, the horses, the riders into the sea. Okay? Another exodus event in which His enemies are going to be overthrown, but His people thereby are going to be saved. And He says, when that happens, Zerubbabel will be honored as having been foundational to the whole thing. Interesting. He's going to be exalted as a faithful servant through whom the Lord was made known to the world again. That's the idea of the signet ring. For any with eyes to see it, Zerubbabel will have lived in a way that his life bears the signature of God. <laughs> oh, to live like Zerubbabel. That your life and this church would bear the signature of God. Make Him known. But now, why? Why Zerubbabel? That's the question. Why Zerubbabel? It's Zerubbabel because if you go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 19, or forward to Matthew chapter 1, verse 12, you would find Zerubbabel is of the line of David. And he's like the great, great, great granddaddy of Joseph, the father, as it were, of Jesus. <laughs> what treasures. What God inaugurated with David and resurrects right here with Zerubbabel, He fulfills in Jesus. In Christ, the Lord came into the world and then to His temple. But, unclean as they were, what did they do with him? They cast him out. They cast him out and they had him crucified. And yet, and yet, he knew this was the plan the whole time. Jesus was not crucified kicking and screaming. Quite to the contrary. He was rather crucified quietly. 
like a lamb being led to the slaughter. Quietly. He went to be crucified decidedly as the servant of the Lord. He went to the cross as he said to Moses in the transfiguration account to carry out, no joke y'all, he says, an exodus. To set his exiles free from the penalty and power of sin. There on the cross, Jesus suffered in our place the righteous for the unrighteous that he might part the sea and bring us safely to God. On that altar, the cross, Christ died to save his people and to set them apart as holy to God. There, the risen Jesus proved the cornerstone to God's living temple, the master of the house. And in it all, what's seen? What's seen? But the radiance of the glory of God. In all of it, His life, death, resurrection, ascension, the radiance of the glory of God, and what? The exact imprint of His nature. So in Christ, we see no illegible or inconsistent signature. We see the beauty of God incarnate, clear as day. So, the signet ring is getting passed down to Him, but it doesn't end with Him. Beloved, I want us to hear again, grace amazing and sovereign has brought you safely to the other side of the sea. Why? You've got to ask these questions. Why have we been saved? If not, to be a house in which the Lord has come to reign. Dear ones, is it not that we would image forth His biblical beauty? Do we look and sound like we're related to Jesus? People remark about this building all the time. I'm sure you've heard them. Oh, what a lovely building. When was that remade, remodeled? The bricks, the floors, the windows, the cafe. It's all so beautiful. But what about the actual church that meets inside the building? And not in one or two or ten but the whole church as one. (laughs) I could not care less about the pomp and the, the pageantry of various evangelical towers and bastions in our world today. What I care about is, are we a pillar and buttress of truth? Are we a people who are bearing the signet ring of God? Are we a people who are bearing the signature of the very person of Christ? Are we becoming His palace beautiful? That's the question. And, as in that palace, the answer will always depend. How much do we talk of Him? 
And how well do we embody His rule and reign? To be His compelling community, how vital then that we be not a compromising one. When people encounter us, they should encounter a gospel that saves. And they should encounter an almighty Savior who is tangibly on the throne. He should be on the throne of our hearts. He should be on the throne of our fellowship. He should be on the throne of our doctrine, our discipline, our preaching, our sorrowing, our rejoicing. He should be on the throne of our living. He should be on the throne of our building as a people. Oh, friend, listen. Let me just invite you to turn to Him now. You see verse 22 in our passage. There's no salvation in a world of drawn swords. What is that to God? No, your only hope is to turn yourself into the judge of all, believing that He's the Savior of all who fall upon His mercy. You've heard it now, how the Lord Jesus died to save His enemies, to be His holy house. And so the, the, the urgent plea and prayer of this church for you is that you would believe upon Him. Because if you believe upon Him, even now, He will wash you and He will forgive you and He will fit you to fare forever well with God. Oh, beloved, to be a palace beautiful. We've got to remember the means, the ministry, and the master of it. We've got to work reliantly upon God. We've got to build so that a people who are set apart to God are actually set apart. We've got to bow. We've got to bow so that the beauty of Jesus can rise. As we're faithful there, Haggai's house of greater glory will find a fulfillment in us. Dare I say, we'll be able to come and go and say, where am I now? Is this the love and care of Jesus? For the men that pilgrims are, thus to provide that I shall be forgiven and dwell already the next door to heaven. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we look to you alone. We thank you for your word. It is living and active. Make it to live and act in us to your glory. Make us a palace beautiful for you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.